Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, the first thing we always do is take them, and I want you to grab them today and turn to Matthew chapter 24. Not Luke, but Matthew chapter, uh, actually 25, if you would, this morning. For three weeks, we're going to be looking at a special topic that we'll deal with called uh, generous living. We're going to talk about what it means to be living generously as the people of God. And uh, for these three weeks, we'll be looking at everything that has to do with what generosity is when it comes to your treasure, when it comes to your time when it comes to your uh, truth that God has given you. So look at your life over the next few weeks and how we are living generously. Matthew chapter 25. Now before I ask you to stay, and let me just say one thing. Happening tonight at 5 p.m., I do this. Every semester we begin something that we call Can We Talk? For three years we have been doing Can We Talk here at First Year. We have actually had conversations with more than 3,000 people, 3,000 homes on their doorstep, and we've had gospel conversations with them. We've had more than 500 people put their faith and trust in Jesus. But think about the impact of going to 3,000 homes over the course of the last few years. It's amazing, but we also know that there are 47,000 households in the Hearst Eulis Bedford area. So if you do the math with that, that's not uh, an overwhelming amount yet. We have much work to do, and tonight, beginning at five o'clock, we're starting another six-week semester of Can We Talk? The purpose of that is to equip people to share their faith and actually to get out into the community and do that. And I wanna encourage you to be there tonight, even if you haven't registered, if you're willing to be a part of Can We Talk for six weeks on Sunday evenings at 5 p.m., come tonight. I look forward to seeing you there. There's no better thing that you can share with someone than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do we agree with that? I believe there's nothing better. In fact, that's the only thing that brings people to salvation. So join us tonight at 5 p.m. Please stand with me as you have your Bibles and you have Matthew chapter 25 open. Matthew 25 is a unique chapter. Chapter 24 talks about the signs of his return. Chapter 25 talks about what he does when he returns, what he does when he comes. There are three big parables in Matthew chapter 25. The first one is the parable of the ten virgins. It asks the question, are you ready for his imminent return? Do you have oil in your lamps? Are you ready for his return. The last section of Matthew chapter 25 deals with compassion. Have you treated people on earth with compassion? Jesus said to his disciples, I was naked and you clothed me, and I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was in prison and you visited me. And the disciples said to Jesus, when did that happen? He says, in that you have done this to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. These are the conversations we have with Jesus in heaven when he returns. But the one that we'll deal with over the next three weeks is the one that has to do with the talents, the parable of the talents. Now, we've heard this before and probably read it a number of times, and I want to give you kind of a guide for what we understand as we read this parable. First of all, the man that goes on the journey is none other than Jesus Christ who goes on a long journey. The slaves or the servants of this master who goes on a journey are all professing believers. The journey itself that we'll read about is the fact that our master has gone for a time away from earth and will one day return. And the point of the parable is, what does each one of us do with what we've been given? What do these servants do with what they've been given? What do we do with what we've been given? Are you ready? Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 14, here's the parable. 
For it is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. Immediately the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. But he who had received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents to the master, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will make you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I have gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid, and I went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the 10 talents. Then the principle is explained. Verse 29, for to everyone who has more shall be given and he will have an abundance but from the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Wow. So the story is pretty expansive and ends with a serious note. Now there's a lot of fun in this passage because there are some who enter into the joy of their master, but there's a lot of anguish for others. So I want you today to look at this in a serious manner, but a hopeful manner. Father, in Jesus' name, I ask you to speak to us powerfully in this text. Help us to know what Jesus was communicating to the disciples in an unmistakable way. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. This is about how you live. This is about how the disciples of Jesus were being called to live. It really is about whether you're living life now in light of eternity. So let me ask the question today. Do the decisions you make right now, does the generosity that you exhibit right now, is it all done in light of the end game, in light of what God may say, in light of what Jesus would have us do, or is it just about here and now? Is it about what's convenient? Is it about what we want to do in our hearts, or is it about ultimately a huge responsibility to be generous because our God is amazingly generous. How many of you would agree with me this morning that God is a generous God? Say amen. amen. Oh, he's so generous. God so loved the world that he what? He gave. He gave his only begotten son. We've walked through this the ceremony of the Lord's Supper this morning. And we've celebrated the generosity of God, the fact that Jesus gave his life, he gave his blood, that the Father gave his Son so that we might have the gift of eternal life. God is a generous God. What is generosity? 
But let me give you a working definition for us over these next few weeks of what generosity is and what generous living is. Generous living is selfless living. Generous living is selfless living. The willingness to share. The willingness to share. If you knew that God was going to ask you to give an account of everything he's given you, everything he's done for you, would it change the way you're living? Would it change the way you're giving? Would it change the way you talk and the way you walk? So over this next three weeks, I'm going to challenge you in the way of your treasure, your money. Challenge you in the way of your time. How much time have you been given? I'm going to challenge you in the way of the truth that's been entrusted to you. You know truth that others don't know. What will you do with that? All these things are part of this parable today. And I really want you to ask yourself the question, am I faithful? Because see, the cool thing about this master coming back is that two of those servants were able to say, Lord, we did the very best that we could with what you gave us. And he said to them, well done. Good and what? Good and faithful servants. We're going to focus on that today. And I hope at the end of your life, you can say, I've been faithful. I've been faithful. So let's look at the parable today for just a few moments. First of all, notice he entrusted his possessions. The Bible says in verse 14, if you're underlining, if you underscore things and put points out to the side, he entrusted his possessions. The word entrust there is in the Greek, paradidomai, and it's a word that means to hand over to the side. It means that as these disciples were walking with Jesus, Jesus tells the story of a master with his servants, and he hands over to the side what ultimately belongs to the master. Now, this is a very serious moment in the conversation of this parable because what Jesus is doing and saying is nothing less than what he and the Father, the Heavenly Father, are doing together. Now, I ask you to turn over to Matthew chapter 11 for just a second, and I want to see how this word is used in a conversation where Jesus is talking about what his Father has given him. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 27, the same exact word, the word in trust, is found in this verse right here. And here's how it's worded. Verse 27, all things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal to him. Jesus is basically saying, the Father has given me everything and a role to play and a job to do. Everything I do is supposed to expose and reveal the Father. The way I live, the generosity that I exhibit, the life I ultimately have sacrificed on the cross is supposed to reveal the love of the Father to everybody that sees it. So the Father has handed all these things to me. Now, Jesus has already said this to his disciples, and now on this day, he's giving them the parable of how it will look when Jesus comes back, and he says to these disciples, this master handed over all his possessions to the, to the servants. So this handing over is a pretty big deal. Specifically, his possessions. Although it can represent treasure or time or truth, at the very bottom line, the talent was a large sum of money. Now, all kinds of commentators have all kinds of opinions about this. Some of them say it was worth $2,400 in today's dollars. Some say it's a year's of wage. Some say that it's like a 50-pound gold bar. All kinds of opinions about this, but what you need to be focused on is this is a big deal. The master has given a big deal of money, a large, valuable thing to the servant, and he's going to watch the way they deal with the money. Now, let me just say this. This is a biblical concept that goes from Genesis 
to Revelation. And here it is. What we have is not ours. It belongs to him. So I'm going to say that again because I want you to let this sink in a little bit. We don't normally speak in those terms. We say, it's mine. We learn to do that when we're preschoolers, right? It's mine. And when kids don't want to share their toys, the reason they don't share their toys is because it's mine. And it's always going to be mine. And, uh, and I'm not ever going to give it to you. I mean, that's the way preschoolers work. We have to learn that we're very self-oriented, selfish oriented and it's very important for us to see as people following Jesus that it's not ours. It's his. Your life is not your own. It's his. Your possessions are not your own. They're his. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from the very beginning of creation, God began to say to the first man, the first woman, I'm entrusting things to you. They're not yours. You can live in this garden that I've given you, but, and you can eat of all the trees that I have provided for you, but don't touch this one because in the day you begin to claim it for yourself and you don't honor what I say about it, then, then you'll die. And that's exactly how sin began to enter in. But there are other passages through the Bible that remind us that it's not ours. For example, if you go to uh, Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 18, we find God speaking to his people Israel about their ability to do well financially, to provide, to meet needs, to gain wealth. And here's what he says. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who is giving you power to make wealth that he may confirm his covenant, which he swore with your fathers. In other words, even the skills you have to make a living, God has given you those skills. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 9 reminds us of this as well. Honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all your produce. Why? Because he is the one that provides for you to have barns filled with plenty. So honor him first with your money specifically. Malachi chapter 3, verse 9 and 10, where we find part of the teaching of the tithe says this, you're cursed as a nation with a curse because you're robbing me, the whole nation of you. And, and they say, how have we robbed you? And he said, well, in your giving, in your generosity. And so he goes with a promise there in verse 10. He says, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and test me and see if I won't pour out for you the windows uh, open the windows of heaven and pour out for you a blessing. All these things teach us that what we have is not ours, but it's been entrusted. It's been handed over to us by the Father. In the New Testament, we have the same kind of teachings. Jesus teaches more about money than he does about heaven or hell. Because what happens when it comes to money is our heart is revealed by what we do with it. Our heart is revealed by our use of time, our use of money. That's why Jesus says, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. And you've got to be careful with that because it reveals to you something about your life and your heart. First Corinthians chapter four says, we're stewards together of the mysteries of God. We're just managers of all that God has given us. So the concept is everything we have is not ours, but God provides for us. Now, you know what this is like. I remember when we were um, first growing our family and we didn't have a very nice vehicle. I remember we were going on vacation one time and a very a generous neighbor called us and said, hey, we want you to use our Suburban to go on your family trip. I said, do you understand how many kids I have? I have six kids. They said, yeah, that's why you need a big car. And I admired their car for years and I thought, this is a beautiful Suburban. And my first thought was, can I bring it back in good shape or not? I don't know. So I said, okay, we'll borrow it. And I want you to know, I babied that car for, for four, three or 4,000 miles, however far it was. And after we got back, 
I cleaned every part of that. And all during the trip, I said to the kids, don't drop anything, don't spill anything. If you so much as drop a peanut on that carpet, I'm putting you out on the side of the road. <laughs> Not really, but something like that. I wanted that brought back in good shape because it wasn't mine. It wasn't mine. There was somebody else's. I had to give an account for the condition of it. I was grateful for the use of it, but I had to bring it back as though I had treated it with respect. The same thing is true of anything that we borrow. An awareness that it doesn't belong to us causes us to treat it wisely. My question and the issue at stake in this parable is, what will you do with what you've been given, with what he has handed over to you? Will you treat it as though it's his? Because it is. It is his. It's not ours. He entrusted his possession. Secondly, accountability will come. It's a very simple thing to be able to see this in the text. The Bible says in verse 19, he came and settled accounts with them after a long period of time. Now, this is a shock for the one servant, but not so much with the other two. They were ready. But the one was like, ah, he may never come back. I'm just going to put it in the ground. I'm not going to invest in it. I'm not going to be concerned about that. Who knows when he's coming back? You know, the there's something about how long it takes for Jesus to come back that lulls us into a sense of complacency. We live lethargically because we don't realize that Jesus is going to come back at any moment. We live as though we have all the time in the world, and reality is that we don't know the time whether he will come back soon or whether we will go to be with him. But we don't own it. It belongs to him. One of my favorite shows when my kids were growing up, was the Cosby Show. How many of you remember the Cosby Show? And Theo, I remember one day, was talking to his dad, and he wanted some money from his dad. He said, Dad, we're rich. And the father said, stop, Leo. I want you to know, Theo, stop. He said, you're not rich. You have nothing. Your mother and father are wealthy. I've used that many times in dealing with my children. And we have to come with a perspective that we, we don't have everything for us. We have everything for him, and we have to be careful with that. That's why accountability is so important. Verse 19, he came and settled accounts with them. Settled means to take everything into account. It literally means he looks at the whole picture of life and evaluates. And I've got to tell you today, the sobering part of this message is right here. One day, all will be evaluated. When I was a junior in high school, uh, our all-star defensive uh, tackle went out with a bad injury the day before a big game. And this big game was against a state championship caliber team that had an opposing tackle on the offensive side. He was 6'8", 280. His name, I still remember his name, Damon Clagg. He ended up playing professional football. 6'8", 280. He was barely 16 years of age and had a full-grown beard. I mean, it was amazing how <laughs> mature, mean, and, and, and intimidating he was. Well, I was glad that I was a defensive end, not a defensive tackle. And when that guy went down, I thought, well, I don't know who's going to replace him, but I'm glad it's not me. And of course, the moment before the game started, our coach said, John, I'm moving you in. Now, at that moment, I was 6'4", weighed about 180 pounds. He outweighed me by 100 pounds. And so I thought, it's all, it's all a mental game, you know, mind over matter. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to psych him out. I'm going to be extremely aggressive, and my ferocity is going to send him packing. And sure enough, it didn't happen. He pummeled me into the ground, play after play. My coach had to dig me out four feet under. It was that bad. And I just somehow got through the game. We got beaten by an awful 
amount of points. Most of them were the running back running right over where I was. <laughs> I went home and I thought, well, at least I won't have to relive this. Got up the next morning and had forgotten that every Saturday morning, the football team goes down and they review films of the day before. And sure enough, the coach pulled my performance up and showed it over and over and over again as a clinic on how not to play defensive tackle. That's when I decided basketball was in my future, amen? <laughs> One day, our life will be reviewed. One day, every aspect of our life, I don't know how God's going to do this. I know heaven's a place of joy, a place of great reunion with ourselves and Christ, but we are also accountable. Otherwise, Jesus would not have said this. There is a day of review. There is a day of seriousness, accountability. And in verse 27, it says this. He said to that servant that was unfaithful, you ought to have put my money in the bank and on my arrival, I would have at least received my money back with interest. You should have done something with what I gave you to do. Now, this one servant in verse 27 and the surrounding verses is the villain of the story. This slave is not atheist or agnostic. He's a servant of God, but an unfaithful one. Let me read to you what John MacArthur said about this in his commentary. This one played it safe. He did not invest wisely to advance the kingdom. He had no faith. Where the others heard, well done, good and faithful servant, this one had no faith. And it represents those who have Everything everyone else has, fellowship, teaching, worship, opportunity, but they bury it all. They're not pleasing to the Lord. In fact, the Lord is angry because the master has given us what we have to advance his priorities. This servant cared little for the things the master cared for. That's my summary. That's us when we live for ourselves. That's us when we don't think about eternity. That's us when we don't think about the agenda that God has and why God gave us what he gave us, why we have the money we have, why we have the time we have, why we have the truth that we've been given. But here's the deal. We can do better than this. We can do better than this faithless servant. We can give, we can serve, we can share. And if we don't, the scripture teaches us there are lots of reasons that should motivate us to be the other two servants instead of this one. Here's a couple of principles that are pretty common knowledge. Let me just give them to you all at once. Lack of use causes loss. If you've been given something by God and you have, and you don't use that for God, it causes loss in your life. Whether it be the voice that you've been given to sing with, or whether it's been given the money that, that God has provided for you to live with, or the talents, or the truth that God has given you, or the time you have on planet Earth. Lack of use causes loss in the kingdom. Secondly, what you don't use, you lose. It's another way of saying the first. And then whatever you do not employ, you forfeit. You give it up. I heard one man describe it like this. He said, it's like a muscle that, if unused, atrophies. The word atrophy means it wastes away. Anybody understand what that means? There was a day where I could run 21 miles without stopping, but that's been almost 21 years ago. I can't do that anymore, even though in my mind I remember that and I vividly think I can do that, but I cannot do that because my muscles have atrophied to that point, and until I build them up, I will never run 21 miles. And so it's, it's one of my annual New Year's resolutions that I will not run a marathon in the coming year, and I've kept that every year, and I plan to keep keeping it. 
Don't use a muscle, it will atrophy. It will weaken. It won't be as useful anymore. You know, that's true of your money. That's true of your time. That's true of your truth that you've been given. One day God will reward each of us. But we want a good reward. And that brings me to the third place. The third point is reward is promised. I love this part. Now it gets really good here. We, we've handled some serious stuff right here. But I want you to jump now to the fact that reward is promised. One day, God will reward each one of us for faithfulness. Now, notice the three things I'm sharing with you this time. Faithfulness with little brings trust for more. If you take the smallest amount of what God's given you, time, treasure, or truth, and you invest it wisely for his kingdom, the Bible says you'll receive more of it. Look at verse 21. You were faithful with a few things, and the master says, I will put you in charge of many things. You want to zero in on these words, verse 28 and 29. He says, therefore, take away the talent from him that is the villain, the servant that was faithless, and give it to the one who has had the ten talents. And then he says, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance, but from the one who does not have, even what he does not have shall be taken away. Now, it, this is not a call for us to live in fear of God, but rather in respect of God. As long as your understanding of the fear of God defines it as respecting God. It doesn't mean the morbid fear of God striking with a thunderbolt if you don't live righteously, but it means that we have this awe and respect and reverence for him that we do have a life that's been given to us by him, not by anybody else but by him. And so we want to return that to him in a wise way. And if you're faithful in a little way, you'll be found faithful in much. My dad used to tell me this. He said, when, when I was a little boy, and I've told you the stories about how my dad taught us to give to the Lord, he gave us uh, an, all, a, 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 an allowance every week, and that allowance was in dimes so that we would understand the idea of the tenth. He didn't give it to us in quarters or silver dollars or paper dollars. He gave it to us in dimes. And so it wasn't, it wasn't really difficult for us to figure out how many of those dimes to give to the Lord as a starting place for giving and for living generously. And so I would give that dime to the Lord. And my dad would always say, if you're faithful with this, God may give you the opportunity to be faithful with even more down the road. And, and my dad was right. And I saw that in life all around me. You know, when most testimonies are heard about giving or generosity, and people talk about either tithing or bringing offerings to the Lord and how God has led them to give. The punchline is always the same. I always think these are amazing and sensational stories, but in reality, they're also predictable because the punchline is always the same. The punchline is, I was giving as God led me to give. I was being generous as God had called me to be generous, and I didn't know how I could make ends meet, but somehow God made our ends meet every time. That's a, that's a very predictable punchline. You know why it's predictable? Because it's an eternal principle that you've just read about in verse 29. If you're faithful in little, God will also give you much to be faithful with him with. And so here's the reward. The reward is faithfulness with little brings trust for more. Now that's not only now, but that's also in the life to come. And while Jesus doesn't say much about that life to come, he speaks highly of it in this life. Secondly, we expand our master's kingdom. On my arrival, look at verse 27. On my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. The master wants this. He has got a huge interest in impacting lives with your generosity, your time, your talents, 
and the truth he's given with you if you'll be selfless. Here's something I want you to grab hold of. Generous people are not possessed by their possessions, but they share them. Generous people have possessions, but they're not possessed by them. They share them. They share them with anyone that has need, and that involves money, it involves time, it involves whatever is needed. Generous people are not possessed by their possessions, but share them. That's the whole parable of the Good Samaritan. A few weeks ago in the book of Luke, we looked at that. The religious man walked by the one beaten by the thieves and did nothing. The other man did the same thing, but the one who stopped was a good Samaritan, Jesus said, and a generous one. So not only did he bandage the man up and put him on his own animal, but he took him to an inn. And out of his own possessions, he said, I want you to take care of this man, this victim. And I'm gonna give you some money in addition to that. And I'll be bought, and if he has any other needs, I'll take care of those too. And Jesus looked at that story that he just shared with his disciples and said, that's generosity, that's compassion. You go and you do likewise. You see, that's so clearly the character of God being spelled out. You know, one thing that I grieve over and it's actually painful for many of us in this room, probably most of us, is the heartbreak and the loss and the tragedy of these storms that have hit First Houston and now coming up the coast of Florida right now. I mean, so much grief goes into that. So many tears have been shed. So much hurting is taking place. But I want you to notice that it also brings something else out. It brings out the power of generosity. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed people from all over the world moving to those areas and they're demonstrating generosity, they're demonstrating compassion, they're, they're rescuing people, they're feeding people, they're clothing people, they're doing everything else. You know what I noticed? I noticed that there are no political demonstrations in Houston recently. Nobody's clamoring about being a victim. No political party interests seem to be happening there. Just sheer generosity in a time of great darkness and light is shining. And that's what happens when God's people show up. Let me just tell you, the overwhelming majority of stories I'm hearing about out of Houston and anywhere else are God's people going to work in a time of darkness. Doesn't that just thrill your heart? And I'll tell you what, that's the way it's supposed to be. But more than that, it thrills the heart of Father God. Thrills his heart. Because many are coming to faith. Many are trusting him for the first time in their life. And the reason that's so awesome is because we're never more like God than when we're generous. Never more like God than when we give. Whatever we give. And then this last thing. You can't miss it. This is important. Not only will faithfulness with little bring trust for more. Not only will we expand our master's kingdom, but... We bring our master joy. Look in verse 21. Enter into the joy of your master. This parable's got some bad news. He's angry about the one that had no faith, the one that was selfish, the one that buried the talent, did nothing with it. He is overjoyed with the other two. Overjoyed. I'm gonna pause for just a moment. Would you just do me a favor? Would everybody in this room just smile for a moment? Even if you struggle to smile, would you just smile for a minute? Just come on. Come on. Come on, Tyson. Do it. Come on. Some of us struggle to smile. I can read lips, but I can also see teeth from long distances, so I know if you're following or not. The reason I ask you to do that is because here we have a picture that we don't often see in visible form. It's a picture of a smiling Jesus. Have you noticed that most of the pictures we see of Jesus are somber, 
sober pictures. He's a shepherd that's gone after a lost sheep and he's burdened by that sheep. Or he's a savior hanging on the cross and bloodshed is happening. It's not a moment to smile, but in this text, in this picture, it's a smiling Jesus. Enter into the joy of your master. I know this church pretty well. I know many of you in this room pretty well. And I'm going to tell you that many of you will face Jesus someday and he's going to say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master. It doesn't just mean there's joy there. It means that he is overjoyed. It means that he is thrilled with what you've done. It means that he's excited about how you've been generous and invested time and money and energy and truth into the lives of other people. Enter into the joy, the joy of your master. Smiling Jesus is real. And what we need to live for is that smile. We're going to enjoy looking back at the end of a season to see how deeply we've invested in the kingdom and thankful. But there's no joy like seeing our master smiling. When I was in college, as a freshman, this is the other side of being a poor athlete. I was also a good athlete. I did turn to basketball. I did become a college basketball player. In my freshman year in college, I became a starter about mid-season. So my first game to start was against the number one team of the nation. And uh, I was a guard, uh, a shooting guard. And so I had to defend the other high-scoring player on the team. And so early on in the game, there was a pass made from the point, top of the circle, to a man on the side that I was guarding. I anticipated the pass, intercepted the pass. There was nobody behind me, ran down to make a layup. Now, this was the first year which freshmen could play on varsity. It was also the first year where you could actually dunk in a game and not have a technical foul. Some don't remember that era. There was an era where basketball was wimpy and it was not, you know, like slam dunk and hang on the rim kind of thing. But that was the first year. And was I going to squash that? Absolutely not. I'm going down as fast as I can and I'm going up and I'm going to, I'm going to slam that as hard as I possibly can. And so I go up and I do that. I get a great slam dunk, and a picture is taken of that moment. Now, I don't see this picture for almost a year. And when I receive the picture, someone has given it to me. Um, I look at the picture, and I see the slam dunk. But what I didn't at first see was the crowd behind where I was slamming the basketball. So in the crowd behind, there's a group of faces. And as I peered into that very sharp black and white photo, by the way, very sharp, but black and white, I look and I recognize one person. This one person, while everybody is seated, everybody else is seated, is coming out of the chair. Their arms are up, huge smile on their face, and I look more carefully, and it is my mother who recognizes what's about to happen. <laughs> my mom. My mom was a high school basketball player. My mom, of course, raised me, gave birth to me, encouraged me when I was down, and she was for me. She was a cheerleader, man. And that picture, that picture showed her coming out of her seat. Her hands were up. Her face was, was lit up. She was smiling. And in the years, I still have that picture, by the way. And in the years, looking back, that dunk doesn't mean anything. Two points. But the smile on her face, priceless. Priceless. And one day, you're going to think, well, my money doesn't matter. My time doesn't matter. It's not that much. God only gave me one time or two instead of the five or more. But the look on his face, priceless. The smiling Jesus greets you and says, well done, good and faithful servant. You live for that.
and you'll look back with no regrets. That's what generosity does in the life of a believer. I want you to bow your head for just a moment. I want you to think about your life. I want you to think about your time, your treasure. I want you to think about the truth you've been entrusted with. And I'm going to ask you, are you a faithful servant? Are you living in light of eternity? Not just about here and now, but looking for the day when you see the face of Jesus. Will you live in such a way where you can see that what Jesus has said here, you'll see a smiling Jesus. It all begins by giving him your life as salvation. That's where it begins. God's character is such that he will not allow us to have a relationship because of the offense of sin that all of us have been involved with. But he sent Jesus, who we've already said together, he gave his life for a ransom, paid for our sin. So because of the sufficiency of Jesus, we have a decision to make. And that decision is to put our faith and trust in Christ alone. If that's never happened to you, that's the beginning of this. The reason some people don't see life as belonging to God is because they haven't given their lives to God. They haven't given their lives to Jesus. Once we do that, we understand what we've talked about today much better. And we can begin to live that way. I urge you to make a decision to give your life and everything you have to Jesus today. And let him lead you and guide you in this. And look forward to the day when he returns. Our, our counselors will come to the front right now. And as they come, they'll stand at the front in just a moment. After my prayer, I urge you to come forward and talk to some of them. Maybe it's a practical question about generosity, about how you can serve God or what you can give that will be pleasing to God. Or maybe it's a question about the forgiveness of sin that we talked about earlier in the service, whether you've had him forgive your sin or not. Maybe, maybe it's a question that's not even related to those. Maybe you just want prayer. Would you come? Would you take advantage of these people who are here to lovingly pray for you and give you wise counsel from, from God's Word. In just a moment as I pray, I urge you to come. I urge our guests to come to our guest central. Love to visit with you, but first the spiritual decision. Would you stand with me as I close this in prayer? Father, thank you so much for the amazing privilege that you've given us to open your Word again and again, and we know that you speak to us through your Word. Father, thank you for the picture of a smiling Jesus. Thank you so much for the picture of one who gives us all that we have. Father, I ask you, allow us to live life in view of eternity. Father, let us live generously and let us let your character shine through us. Now today, Father, may no one leave this room without making the most important decision of their lives and allowing you to be Lord and Savior. Thank you, Father. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.